Welcome to episode 31 of the Beacons of Bravery podcast. And today's beacon is Jenny Lisk. And OMG, does she portray a beacon like nobody else? This conversation we had was awesome. That's all I can say. I was left feeling uplifted. We laughed, we cried so much in this episode. But more about Jenny. She's an author, she's a podcaster, she's a coach to other authors, and she's also someone who has been dealt devastating loss in her life. But she gives us perspective on everything and even gives us a cool place to go when we're feeling bad. She truly shines a light on how to live a good life despite your circumstances and gives us perspective on how we can view the hard things in our life and realize that we can go on from there and we can do great things to inspire others. Please enjoy this episode. Listen the whole way through. I know it's a little bit long, but I wanted to, I considered breaking it up into two segments, but I feel like the through line will truly convey the depth of our conversation. So if you have a walk to go on or a long run, or you can start and stop it however you want, but please listen the whole way through because you will truly be inspired by our beacon today. And please, if you get anything from this show, connect with Jenny and tell her what you got from it. You can tag her and I both on social media and let us know that you were inspired in some way and we would really appreciate it because we like to know that you know what we're saying to you makes a difference thank you sit back relax or enjoy your walk or run or drive to work and enjoy the show welcome to the beacons of bravery podcast i'm your host carrie norman former perfectionist people pleaser and rule follower who woke up one day and realized I'd been living somebody else's dream because of my fear of stepping outside the lines. That's why I started this podcast, to interview authors, entrepreneurs, and everyday people who learn to overcome their fears and obstacles in order to live the life of their dreams, to shine the light on how we can live the life of our dreams. Jenny Lisk. Welcome to the Beacons of Bravery podcast. How are you doing? Good, good. Good to see you, Carrie. How are you? I am great. Where are you joining us from today? I just like to know. Yeah, yeah. I am in in Seattle, Washington. Actually, Redmond, just outside Seattle. Uh huh. And that's in the U.S. For anybody outside of here. Yes. And you're having a heat wave there in the Northwest. That's not expected, right? Oh my gosh, it's been terrible. You know, the strange thing is, I think the hottest we ever had was about 10 years ago. It got up to 103 for like two days in a row. Well, this week we hit 112, which is just unfathomable. And most people don't have AC here. Uh, So it's, yeah. And fortunately I do. So, but it's been, it's been wild. That's crazy. When I lived in the Northwest, I don't ever remember a temperature that high. Being in Louisiana now, I do know that, but we haven't even been that high. So yeah, that's enough about the weather. 
But anyway, uh, I like to tell people how we connected. And mm-hmm. actually, it's through our mutual friend, Stacy Llewellyn, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she was one of my childhood best friends. So, oh. but she re- recommended you to be on the podcast because she thought you would be a great guest. So I appreciate you being here for sure. Oh, terrific. Well, I will be sure to tell her. Thank you. I went to college with Stacy in Oregon a oh. uh, long time ago by now. So, um, <laughs> Good times. It was a lot of fun. So we're about the same age then. It seems. I think so. <laughs> so I'd like to start with kind of a fun question and it might lead other places. And that is where has been your favorite place to travel and why? Mm, yeah, that is a good question. You know, um, what jumps right into my mind is probably my most one of my more recent trips. I went to Mexico mm-hmm. to a surfing town. Uh, and actually viewers can't see, but I'll show you here, the surfing necklace that I bought on the beach, um, in Mexico, I went to this, it's a women's surfing camp and their tagline is they make girls out of women. And yeah, and it's so cool. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a American, you know, California based company and they've run the surfing camp in this small town near Puerto Vallarta for, I don't know, decades, um, and it's just terrific. And there are women from all over the U.S. and Canada who are there. I went by myself. I had, you know, the three roommates they put me with. It was terrific. And just to, you know, even though I, I grew up in Seattle and spent a lot of time on the Oregon coast, I never went surfing there. For mm-hmm. one thing, it's cold, cool. as I'm sure you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, also, I hear uh, it can be a little sharky. The yeah. people uh, and this group told me, I hope it doesn't sound too good. But uh, you know what? It was about a year after my husband died. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I had seen, you know, a friend had done it a few years before. She posted it on Facebook. And I'm like, I'm going to file that away. Someday I'm going to do that. And it was just wonderful. And it was, um, you know, the thrill of getting up on the surfboard mm-hmm. the first time riding all the way into the beach. Of course, I never had any good rides after that. But, you know, I did it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was really terrific. And uh, something that was really, I don't know, I felt good about doing that, you know, for myself. Yeah, that's cool. So their tagline about making girls out of women or whatever, I might not be uh-huh. that right. Is it really right. focused at middle-aged women like going back and living their childhood kind of kind of like recapturing the spirit of when you were you know a young girl and you would just go out and conquer the world you know like before you get to be older and you start having responsibilities or you start telling yourself you can't do things or whatever it might be that you know might kind of um dampen some of that spirit or freedom you know as you as as you get older um, and it's going back and saying, you know, I can do this. I can be, a, you know, a young girl who's on the beach, just giving it her all and uh, and not be constrained by, you know, the rest of the world. And uh, yeah, it was terrific. So, I, you know, I was at the time I was in my mid 40s and um, I was probably a little bit older than the average age, but the oldest people were older than me, maybe in their 50s. Mm-hmm. And the youngest people, there were a few like 30 year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one mother daughter pair. So the girl was a teenager and then the mother. So, and it was, it was really just terrific. I'd encourage anybody to, to check it out if that sounds interesting. 
I might have to put that on my bucket list because that's something <laughs> I've never done nor really wanted to do, but yeah. I think it's a good challenge, you know? Yeah. And you don't have to have ever surfed or even seen a surfboard. You know, beginners welcome. Mm -hmm. um, they do have some advanced camps for, you know, other people who might be in that category. But I think everybody who was there was, you know, first time uh, on the board. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm going to have to look into that. Send me the link and I'll, I'll put it um, in the show notes. For sure. Yeah, it's called Las Olas. Uh, Las Olas Surfing or something like that. I'll send it to you. Okay. Cool. So Jenny, what do you do for a living currently? So I'm an author and I'm a podcast host mm -hmm. and I actually also am a consultant for other authors. Um, so, and my, my podcast is called the widowed parent podcast. Okay. So that kind of, um, widowed parent and grief sphere is the sphere in which I'm operating basically, you know, serving widow parents, uh, helping them feel less alone, bringing resources to this journey, which is really mm, hard and easy to feel lost and alone. So that's, that's what I do. And that's full-time. You do it all full-time. You don't have a nine to five job. <laughs> well, so here's the funny thing. I did spend 20 years in IT. Really? Yes. I worked for a large company until 2018. Um, and so I, and I was, you know, a project manager and a business analyst, um, working for that company, learned a lot of things, but, you know, as the years went on, I got to feeling like it wasn't really the right fit. Mm -hmm. This is when my husband was still alive, mm -hmm. but I just, and I was like, oh, I feel like I should change to something. I don't know what it would be though. You know, I try on some different ideas. I just couldn't quite, you know, see how to make a change or what to change to. Mm -hmm. After my husband died, I, well, I felt lost and I also felt like, you know, it's kind of a perspective shift, right? Like life is too short to be unhappy in, in this mm -hmm. job, but I still didn't make a change. I still stayed there another two or so years. Um, and then, and I had been working remotely from the West coast and they were on the East coast um, for the last 15 years that I was with them, I've been remote. And um, they basically said, hey, we'd like you to move back to New York. You know, we'd love for you to keep your job. It's in New York if you want to keep it. Otherwise, see you later. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, this is not a good time for me to be relocating. My kids are starting middle school and high school. My family's all here. You know, it just wasn't, didn't make any sense. Um, so I decided at that point to take a, I called it a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to take a year, see what I can do um, in this widowed parenting space. And at that point, I didn't know what that would look like. Mm -hmm. I part of, you know, before my husband died, I was like, okay, I, if I want to be doing something different, what is it? I don't know. After he died, it shifted to, I really want to do something that is in this space of helping widowed parents like myself with the resources and the, the, the book that I was looking for that I couldn't find and the information that I was looking for that I couldn't find. And so I decided, all right, these things are kind of converging here. They're laying me off. And instead of going in, well, instead of moving to New York to not be laid off, or instead of looking for another similar job here in Seattle, I thought, let me just take a year and see what I can do. I had, by that point, I had the idea to develop this podcast. Mm -hmm. 
And I realized that a podcast would be a accessible and interesting way to approach the material, right? I could go out and interview different people, Mm -hmm. um, experts who might have expertise on different pieces of this puzzle, um, other widowed parents, people who lost a parent when they were young who could share their journeys. And I could interview these people and then share what I was learning with my listeners Mm -hmm. where they're not going to go, you know, out and interview all these people. It takes a lot of time, as you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as as well as, you know, it's just a, it's a big, big project. And so um, I realized that I could sort of stand in the place of my listeners, interview these uh, guests on my show, and then bring those lessons, you know, share what I was learning out in the form of a podcast. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been doing that now for, well, you know, in September, it will be three years. That's what I was going to ask is what year did you start? Yeah. So the podcast started in November of 2018. Um, and so when I I said September, it'll be three years. September was when I left my corporate job and then I, I got the podcast going. And since then I, you know, I'm having too much fun doing this to go back and do, you know, to go and look for another corporate job. Um, and so I, I, since then I've written a book and I have a whole bunch of other books in mind and including children's books and, you know, still in this grief space, right? It's kind of all in the same ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is, you know, so speaking of jobs, I am doing this corollary thing of helping other authors, um, you know, clients who are publishing books, helping them with marketing or with the independent publishing process or the different aspects um, of that. So I kind of fell into that backwards. Uh, so, and I've just started doing that, um, this year actually. So right now I'm kind of juggling like, okay, there's my own book and I'm trying to do the marketing and there's the next books that I want to write. And I'm trying to figure those out and I'm trying to keep the podcast going and I've got all these clients that I'm helping, you know, so it's, um, it's, yeah, it's keeping me busy. That's for sure. So, so many questions come up for me about that. Okay. We can go right. in a lot of different ways because, don't let me forget to tell you, I'm have always wanted to write a book. I'm writing a book currently, yeah. but I want to Perfect. ask about that whole process. Sure. Going back as a child, because it's quite a leap to go from IT to podcasting, writing books, you know, it just <laughs> doesn't seem to meld. As a child, like go back to when you were fourth, fifth grade or something, what did you aspire to be? Were you mm. a you know, linear thinker or more creative person? Well, you know, the creative thing is interesting. I never thought I was creative because I wasn't creative in a classical sense, like art, terrible at art, (laughs) terrible at music, terrible at sewing. My sister was a sewer in the family and we always would joke that I would, you know, start something and tear it out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I've, but I was always, I had an interest in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that young, but starting maybe around high school, college kind of time frame. But you asked what I wanted to do when I was that young. I wanted to be Perry Mason. You know, Perry Mason, the yes. lawyer. Yeah. Right. Me too. And, that was one of the things. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. I love Perry Mason. In fact, I just happened, I was cleaning out some stuff and I found some of the old Perry Mason books mm-hmm. that my mom had introduced me to when I was a kid. And I started with the books. And then started watching the TV show at some point. And I was going to be a lawyer. 
And, you know, I had all these flash detective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And of course he always, you know, solved the case and he always had some big dramatic, you know, breakthrough and, in you know, it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that's, you know, dialing way back into childhood, that would be that. But then I I started, I was never interested in writing in terms of like, like literature, fiction, like I actually didn't like English class. Yeah. It's probably my least favorite class, which you might think, why am I writing books if I didn't like that? But what I really did like was writing things for, for social studies class. Really? I was a political science major mm. and economics major. And so writing papers on those topics, right? Like I was not interested in analyzing literature of Charles Dickens or something, yeah. but I was extremely interested in writing as a way of conveying information, as a way of, you know, persuading or informing or whatever, like, you know, that kind of aspect of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where I developed an, you know, an interest and therefore through practice some skill in writing. And we're all at home these days on Zoom, right? right? Dogs are just <laughs> part of the, you may hear mine at some point, who knows? There's my little dog <laughs> so what I want to know is how you went from that to being in IT. At what point did that switch? Political si- or yeah. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I okay, as part of my economics majors, political science and economics both, I wrote a paper senior year about this crazy thing I wanted to develop. It was called the Seattle Airline Ticket Exchange. Keep in mind, this was like, you know, the early to mid nineties and I, it, the details of it aren't that exciting, but it was almost think of like a Priceline type thing, but a little different. So I wrote this whole paper about that. And then I was home and doing some other work, decided to apply to grad school to an MBA program because I couldn't kick this idea, this paper I'd written for senior year. I really wanted to start that as a business. Mm -hmm. Right. So I applied to the University of Washington MBA program and I'm like, I'm going to, you know, start this business and I need your MBA program to get the skills, you know, so I can get this thing off the ground. And so they accepted me. So I did the program. Somewhere along the line, that whole original idea just fell off the board. (laughs) (laughs) And this now by now was the was the late 90s. I graduated in 98 from the MBA program. Mm -hmm. So, you know the dot-com, the tech stuff was hot. Mm -hmm. You know, I was here in Seattle and uh, I was working for a small startup, not, uh, not computer technology, but a different flooring technology. Um, After business school, I got a job with them. Well, that lasted for like six months. Then they couldn't pay me because it was a small startup. Right. (laughs) And so they said, Oh, don't you want to work? You know, we'll pay you in stock. And I said, "Uh, yeah, stock doesn't pay the rent. So uh, I don't think so. (laughs) And I started looking for other jobs at that point had just gotten married. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore we were kind of ready for like an exciting adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. And my sister uh, who is my younger sister, but had gone to this tech company straight out of college. So she was already there. She passed my resume around. And next thing you know, I was back there interviewing. And next thing you know, after that, they said, hey, great, you know, move back here, start your job. So we went to New York and it was um, 
not the city, sadly, I would have loved to have lived in the city, but in the suburbs, uh, it was very exciting. And it was, you know, it was an exciting time to be in tech, 1998, 99, you know, it's, um, you know, tech for a large company wasn't the same as tech for a startup. Like it wasn't like being at Amazon or being at one of the small dot coms doing the really exciting stuff. But I did learn a lot of interesting things, you know, and process thinking and and analytical thinking and you know you mentioned it seems a funny leap to be podcasting from from being in tech and it's it's true that none of the things I did in those 20 years are directly relevant right Mm -hmm. to having a website and running social media and doing the editing of shows and all these you know tech things are very different than the large company systems work I was doing Mm -hmm. but on the other hand I became, you know, familiar and comfortable with doing technology-related things, and developed a willingness to, you know, try something or learn something. You know, not not one not backing off because it seems scary or something like that, yeah. uh, because of that background. Very interesting. It, it kind of similar to my pathway. I told you I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a teacher. Perry Mason, I'm with you. Detective, <laughs> all that. Uh huh. Went to college in Seattle, actually, my first oh. year. And uh-huh. I was going to be an English major and a publishing. Um, I wanted to work for a publishing house. Well, I took oh. a Greek mythology class that kicked my butt. And I was like, <laughs> I'm out. I got to do something else. Uh-huh. And my friend's like, hey, well, you're good at science. You should hmm. do physical therapy. And I was like, mm, okay. I don't like blood. I don't want to be a nurse or a doctor, but, uh-huh. you know looks like the money's good. So I just did a 180 and became a physical therapist, you know, nice. but like you with it, I mean, it's totally different. It, it gave me skills to help move on and, you know, do this sort of thing. It's not exactly translating, but you learn different things. You learn people after you treat people and their yeah. ailments, you realize, it's really more internal, like <laughs> psychological, you know, uh, so that's why I'm really intrigued with what makes people do what they do and how do they overcome fears and obstacles, you know, to go on mm, the way. The theme yeah. The yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I want to bring it back around. Cause you mentioned a couple of times your husband that passed. Mm. Away. Mm. Um, and I know that had to be a huge fear and obstacle. I mean, nobody wants that to happen. I guess, tell us maybe a little bit about him, what he did for a living and then what progressed along. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, he also grew up in the Seattle area. Um, the funny thing is we went to cross town high schools. We didn't actually know each other and during high school at all. Although as it turns out, we found out later, we ended, we did have some mutual acquaintances and But he and he went to the University of Washington and then we met later after college. And when we moved back to New York, he ended up going to NYU while we were there and getting a master's degree in urban planning, which, you know, super cool for him to be able to go down to NYU in the city every day and take the train down and, you know, do do that and uh, had some interesting internships there and um, and started working as a planner there in White Plains, which is one of the suburbs, and did that for a little while. And then we decided that uh, we were going to move back out to the West Coast and went to Oregon, actually. And he, you know, a lot of it was because he um, 
really wanted to be an urban planner in Oregon, in Portland specifically. Um, so we lived there for about five years. And then we ended up moving back up here uh, to Seattle. And at that point, our oldest kid was going to be like a year away from starting kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, if we're ever going to move back to Seattle, where most of our family is, you know, this would be a good time to uh, to do that. So we did. And he ended up working for the city of Redmond, which is our city mm -hmm. that we live in. And funny enough, was a city I grew up in. And my mom had been on the city council many years ago in, in Redmond. Uh, so Redmond is, you know, a long time in our family. Anyway, he, this now is back in 2015. So this is six years ago right now. We were going through all this. It was uh, May of 2015. And, you know, it was the weirdest thing. He said, kind of out of the blue, mm -hmm. I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. It wasn't a big deal, mm -hmm. right? He didn't pass out. He didn't have a seizure. He didn't have a headache. He didn't, there's nothing dramatic. I've been feeling a little dizzy. So we had this whole discussion, you know, asking him how, what he's feeling, how long he's been noticing it, all the things you ask, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and because it was a Friday night, it was like, well, it doesn't seem like something to go to the ER for, even the urgent care, right? It wasn't, right. like I said, nothing dramatic, nothing, I mean, dizzy. You could be dehydrated or tired. I don't know. Right. Um, so why don't you call your doctor on Monday? You know, so then I went to go and get some food, uh, take out, come back. And I'm like, how are you doing? how are you feeling? Right. Like can do kind of kicks in like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on top of this. Right. Yeah. So he looks at me and he says, Oh, I'm, I'm okay. But you know, I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. Oh. And I looked at him and I said, and I'm thinking, what is going on? Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, you just told me that. Mm -hmm. And he said, I did I said, yeah, we were sitting right there on the couch had this whole discussion, you know, he was listening, he was participating. It wasn't like he was like not listening or something, right? right? It was a discussion and he didn't remember that. Mm. But then, so I'm thinking, what is going on here? Right. But he was mostly normal. Then, you know, five minutes later, whatever, things were fine again. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm second guessing myself, you know, over the next week, as there start to be little things like that, you know, maybe I said something that was a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, like a figure of speech or something. And he seemed a little bit confused mm -hmm. by what I was saying. And I'm thinking, am I over reading? Am I reading too much of the situation or what's the deal here? You know, anyway, fast forward after about 10 days, it was obvious that there was something going on mm -hmm. because when he called his doctor, you know, as per our original game plan, he called and said, I've been feeling a little dizzy. And they said, why don't you come in in this date? And it's like three weeks out. And cause they didn't think it sounded urgent. Right. So I ended up calling and saying, uh, here's the deal. Here are all the things I'm noticing. And they said, bring him in today. And we go in, explain it all to the, this was just you know, his regular primate care doctor, mm -hmm. not even a specialist or ER or anything. Cause I thought he had been taking a, a medication, a random, uh, different, you know, nothing significant. I thought this might've been a side effect of that. Right. So I thought, Oh, we're going to go in. We're going to say, Oh, here's all these crazy things that are happening. They'll say, Oh, let's change your medicine and we'll be fine. We'll be home. Right. Instead, the doctor says, let's get an MRI of your brain. Mm. So we're like, okay, we're getting an MRI. Fine. Go downstairs. 
you know, how when you go for an MRI, I don't know if you've had an MRI, they say, okay, well, you know, we're going to take you in the back and you'll be about an hour and I'll be in the waiting room and then, you know, he'll come back out and then you go home and we'll call you in 48 hours or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of the hour, he came back out and they said, actually, why don't you go back upstairs now? It's already after five o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. The doctor wants to see you right now. So, of course, they didn't say, right? I'm like, well, I don't know what this is, but this is not how they do things. So this is not a good thing. So we go upstairs. The doctor says, I don't want to scare you. There's something really wrong with your brain. Mm. It might be glioblastoma. Mm. I'm like, well, what's glioblastoma? Never heard the word glioblastoma. turns out it's a super aggressive form of brain cancer, which listeners might have heard of more recently because John McCain and Bo Biden both died of it within the past few years here. Mm. Um, so, but it's very, very aggressive. And so he says, you might have glioblastoma. You need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. Yeah. And so tomorrow, oh my gosh. Right. So Jenny, how old was he at the time? Oh, he, he, uh, was 43 and then turned 44 a couple months later. Okay. I know. And I was 43. Mm-hmm. So the neurosurgeon looks at the MRI and asks us questions and says, uh, we're doing brain surgery the next day. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, this is not, this was so fast. Yeah. I remember sitting in that first doctor's office, primary care still, right? Mm-hmm. And he says these things. And I sit back, I close my eyes, I lean back in the, I'm sitting on the visitor's bench, you know, in the little doctor's room. And I said, are we, are we really having this conversation? Is this, this can't be real. Like, this is not, this is not my life. Like this morning I was doing whatever. And then we came here and now we're going to go home and just, this isn't, it was so fast. Right. And the doctor says, yeah, we are having this conversation and you're going to the neurosurgeon tomorrow. So anyway, he had the brain surgery the objective was to try to remove as much of the tumor as they could. At that point, we only knew that it was a tumor. A tumor could be, I mean, a brain tumor is a scary thing in any case, but it could have been non-cancerous. Mm-hmm. And there are different types of brain tumors, some of them worse than others, and some have better prognosis than others, and they're all scary. And as it turned out, he had the most aggressive and most deathly kind. Um, but anyway, at that point, it was just a tumor. And they were going to try to take as much out as they could and get enough for a biopsy so they could see if it was cancerous and figure out what type it was. And at the end of the surgery, the surgeon comes out and says, well, we got enough for a biopsy, but that's all. We couldn't actually remove any of the tumor because it turns out it wasn't like you might imagine that if you had a tumor, it would be some kind of discrete lump that you could cut around and take out, right? That's what happens you know, oftentimes if you have like a breast cancer, there's a lump that they can cut around and take out. Well, in this case, it wasn't that kind of tumor. It was just kind of all woven throughout the fabric of his brain, mm-hmm. like all these little kind super cool. aggressively growing cells. So there was like no mass to take out. There was just this mass spread around everywhere. So fast forward, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, detail you want to get into on all this, but he, First few months was a bunch of, you know, surgeries and complications and brain fluid leaking out and ER visits and all these things. And then eventually he was on hospice at home for the last several months. He lived about, it was about eight months altogether, Um, you know, including all the, the beginning part, which was just crazy with, I think there was one week where we had four or five ER visits in the same week. 
like, and then of course, every time you do that, you have to find someone to watch the kids and you have mm-hmm. to drop everything and go to the hospital for who knows how long. And you might or might not get admitted and you might, you know, and I have to bring everything in case he gets admitted and, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just chaos, a lot of chaos. And the kids are scared, not knowing what's going on. And I mean, good thing you were back around family at that time. Yeah. And, and between family and friends and the community and in my kids' school, we had a tremendous amount of help and support. There was always somebody who, even at a moment's notice, could take the kids, you know, either watch them at their house or make sure they got to soccer practice or bring them to the hospital for a visit or pick them up from the hospital if I was going to stay longer. There were always people to do those things, mm-hmm. which was terrific. What I wish that I had known or done was like, I kind of felt like the kids were like logistically things were taken care of, you know, they were safe and people made sure they had food and they got to school and, you know, people were bringing meals to the house. So the logistics were taken care of. And I was dealing with so many things with the hospitals and the doctors, the medicines and the emergencies that I, it was kind of like, okay, the kids are fine. You know, and they, and on one level they were cause they were safe and cared for, but, what I wish I had done was make an effort to kind of check in more with them instead of like, you know, checking in, like, how are you? And they're like, fine. And I'm like, you know, how was school? Fine. Or how was so-and-so's house? Fine. You know, to, to go one level deeper of opening those conversations of like, this must be really scary for you. How does this feel? Right. Or, or just, you know, gosh, you know, how was it for you when dad, had to do this or had this problem or, you know, whatever. And even if they didn't want to talk about it, then that, that would have been fine because what I've learned since, right. Through interviewing all these experts for my show mm-hmm. is that opening those doors to the conversations, letting them know these conversations are okay. It's okay to bring up dad. It's okay to be sad or scared or worried or mad or to think it's unfair. Like, like kids, a lot of times they worry like they don't want to maybe upset me by bringing up something. So mm-hmm. they, they want to protect me, you know, they're surviving parents. So they, they don't bring up something, but then they're dealing with the difficult emotions, you know, on their own. And this is one of the things that I tried to do, you know, with my book is to weave in the things I've learned since then from these interviews and the reading and the research and the things that I've done, weave that in to say, you know, not in a way that's like beating myself up because I didn't know I did the best I could and I didn't know a lot of things, mm-hmm. but to be like, wow, you know, in hindsight, if I had known this or done this or thought about this, it would have set us up better, right, for the long run. First of all, I want to say I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. But I'm also like super motivated by you that you turned it into something good. Mm. I, I remember a story because I could actually relate to this, not in any sort of the same way, but I was a student in Houston, Texas as a PT student. Mm. I was doing a rotation at a hospital and the saddest um, thing I saw was a guy that died of that same thing, his family around him. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of your PT patients. Yeah. Hospital patient. Yeah. Yeah. So we, and we had PT in the hospital and we had OT in the hospital and speech therapy in the hospital. And we, and then at 
one point when he was home, we had like, I don't know what they call it, home health services or home, you know, PTs coming to the home and OTs coming to the home and speech therapists coming to the home. So um, yeah, all these worlds that I hadn't, I mean, I'd encountered PT in the form of like, I had knee surgery from a basketball injury and I had to do physical therapy to get my strength back in my leg, right? But but all these other aspects and the fact that there's hospital-based PT and they come and they walk you around the halls because if you're in the bed too long, you lose your strength and, you know, and all these things. And then talking to you about like, okay, when you go home, like how many stairs do you have and what's your bathtub like and what do we need to set up to make sure, you know, you're going to be safe at home? Like it's a whole new world that, um, you know, I, I had to learn fast and how to ask the right questions and how to advocate for what he needed. And yeah, it was a real learning curve. So answer this, if you can, as he, did he realize he was dying and then how did he face that? Mm, that's a good question. So he mostly did not oh, okay. uh, because the brain cancer. So glioblastoma affects people differently depending on which part of the brain it's in. Some people, for example, might lose their vision or some people uh, different things, but in his case, it affected him cognitively and most noticeably, especially at first, his short-term memory uh -huh. um, and, you know, and confusion things. In fact, one of the, I remember in one of the early hospital stays, speech therapy was assessing his cognitive abilities and they asked these questions, which you've probably heard if you were in the hospital setting, you know, and one of them is like, what's bigger, a horse or a dog, right? Mm -hmm. And he thinks about it, he thinks about it. And he's like, I don't know, a dog. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what, you know, and all the questions were like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and they said, well, it might be post-op brain swelling, you know, it might get better. Well, it didn't. Mm -hmm. And so um, even though he was part of all the discussions with the doctors and he heard the diagnosis and he heard the prognosis, and, you know, he, every time there was a scan, he was part of the discussion where we had the results and talked about the next steps. He was, nothing was kept from him, right? but he would then promptly forget what the situation was. Mm -hmm. And so even one time I took him to the ER for something, I don't know what, and the ER doc, who was a new doctor, I mean, not one of our normal doctors, right? So new to him mm -hmm. comes in, he says to the patient, of course, what's going on? And my husband says, I don't know. I think I have cancer. And the doctor says, oh, where's your cancer? He's like, I don't know. Maybe my liver. And I'm like, ah. I'm standing behind him, like waving my hands. Now listeners can't see. I'm waving my hands and saying, no, like you need to ask me the questions. Are you going to ask him stuff? But you need to like right. ask me if it's correct or not. <laughs> right. And I can fill in all the backstory for you. And I can tell you what medicines he's on and what procedures he's had and all these things. But you can't count on answers from him being reliable. So, so that was really difficult in lots of ways, including the fact that one of my friends suggested that I should try to get him to write cards for the kids. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, get a set of cards and he could write a card that I could hold on to like for a 16th birthday or an 18th birthday or graduation or a wedding or a milestone of whatever kinds, like a set of cards for each of them. And I thought, oh, that sounds terrible, right? Like, how am I going to do that? And then I thought, okay, well, she's probably right. I probably should do this. But oh my gosh, because he doesn't remember that he's dying. What am I supposed to do? Go and tell him you're dying. You have to write cards to the kids, right? So 
um, I was kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And then one Saturday morning, he was in inpatient and I was at home. He called. And so we're chatting. And at some point he, he said he was confused about something. I don't even remember what it was. And then he said, well, I guess that's just the way I am now. Mm. And I thought, Ooh, he's got a little bit of awareness of the situation. Like this is going to be my chance. If I'm ever going to have a chance to do the card thing, this is my chance. So I sent the kids off to people's houses. I like swooped into target and bought cards on the way to the hospital. Cause that's how everything happened in those days. Everything happened like just in time, right? Like buy the cards. I park the car. Like as I approach the hospital with every mile, my level of dread is rising. Right. And I walk in, I'm walking into the hospital and I was texting an old friend of mine, actually a different college friend. And her husband was ill at the time as well. And so I texted her and I said, I'm walking into the hospital to tell my husband that he's dying. He has to write cards to the kids. And then the next part of the text was, and I, you probably have a G-rated show. So I said, this is the hardest bleeping thing <laughs> I've ever had to do. Oh. And I, my, 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 the dread was just like uh, so high, like, and every step closer to the elevator and to the fifth floor and to hit, you know, like, it's just oh, so like, how am I going to do this? And you know, one of the things I thought though, in that moment, this is hard after this is anything else that might have seemed hard, really going to seem all that hard. Like, you know, if you have to go talk to the big boss or something or give a big presentation, right. I don't know. Is that going to be hard? Like it kind of gave me that perspective. Like if I can do this, then I should remember this feeling and remember that future stuff that seems hard maybe isn't actually hard because this, this is hard. Like I was, I mean, it was so awful. And so I went up there to his room. I brought the cards in. I don't remember how I started the conversation, Mm -hmm. But at some point I said, you know, I brought these cards so you could write cards to the to the kids. And, you know, I was always kind of like checking his understanding. I wasn't ever too sure, like who he recognized, who he didn't recognize, how much he did or didn't. Right. So he said, oh, yeah, those are called death and dying notes. Uh And I was like, whoa, I mean, to myself, of course. Right. I'm like, where did he come up with that? So then I'm checking understanding. And so I was like, oh, what are those? Mm -hmm. Right who knows if he actually understood, you know? So, and he says, well, it's what you write when you only have a few months to live and you want to write notes to the people who are important to you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. Okay. Right now in this, you know, Saturday afternoon in the hospital on this day, right now he gets it. So that was the only time we were actually able to talk, you know, about his situation and our, you know, lack of a future and, any kind of meaningful discussion was that, you know, I don't know, less than an hour, you know, 20, 30 minutes. I don't know how long it was. It was fairly brief. Yeah. And for the rest, and this was fairly early in his illness. It was maybe two months into the eight months, maybe one or two months into the eight months. It's pretty early. Mm-hmm. The whole rest of the time that he didn't have any, like that, that clarity never came back. So Did that was the notes. Well, he, started one note for each kid 
he didn't finish them and i was trying to get him to i'm like okay i told you i stopped at target and i bought cards the only cards i could find was a set of a hundred cards and envelopes mm-hmm. so so he had two cards he had 98 more cards right i'm like just write love dad on these cards and then you can write another card you know tomorrow or next week oh. or any other time right no 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 i'm not done with these i want to add something i'll just put them aside and you know i'll add to them later and i just knew like that wasn't gonna happen and as i was kind of frustrated because like please just sign the cards right <laughs> like, yeah you have more to say great there's this whole stack of cards anyway um he i kind of quietly collected the cards and took them home for safekeeping and there was never a chance to you know to write any more cards after that but um at least you know it was it was partial it was it was good enough well that window was nice to have yeah for a minute yeah yeah. So going on, we know the ultimate end of it, right? Mm. How, how do you come back from that? You come back from that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I did, well, at first, at first it was a kind of a, things were easier, right? Because I had eight months of constant chaos and stress and medications. And I was giving shots and I was doing this and this and this and this and this and this. And it just, and all of a sudden it was just me and my two kids. And we just had to kind of like breathe, like collectively just exhale, you know, after this time. But then I ended up, well, I started reading a lot. Mm -hmm. I, and it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody about this today. After somebody becomes widowed, like Mm -hmm. half the people tell me, I couldn't read. Like I couldn't read any books. I couldn't focus on any books. I just, I could, just ruined reading for me. And the other half of people tell me, oh my gosh, I read every book I could get my hands on. Mm. <laughs> right. And who knows why anybody has one reaction or the other, but it, it seems to break down into those two camps. So I was reading every book I could find. I found a very interesting book called Grieving Beyond Gender. And it talks about the different grieving styles and there's instrumental grievers and intuitive grievers. And they tend to be aligned with gender, women tend to be uh, intuitive grievers and men tend to be instrumental grievers, but not always. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out I was the instrumental griever type, the men's type. I use that loosely in quotes, but it's a spectrum and people can be degrees of both, but I was processing a lot of it cognitively, which means I was having like flashbacks and things like that. And so I I found a, a therapist. I remember I sent her an email and I was like, I'm an instrumental griever. Can you help me? Like, I was so, you know, I'd be sitting there trying to work and the urn is, you know, 10 feet away. Cause at this point I was, you know, I was working remotely. Right. So I was working from home before it became fashionable and COVID to work from home uh, or not fashionable, but you know what I mean? Mandatory yeah. having flashbacks and getting distracted and mm-hmm. all this. And I'm like, I gotta do something. So I found this therapist. She was terrific. And the interesting thing is that working with her was about grief was also about life, right? Mm -hmm. Like grief is part of it, but it's also like, okay, well now here I am. And what does the rest of my life look like? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, cause I didn't die. Right. And you know, he died and nothing I can do or say or think or wish or magic wand or anything, nothing can change that. So therefore, what do I, what am I going to do? 
like if I felt like he he got like half of a life mm-hmm. half I don't know 44 years old is that half maybe I don't know let's just call it half a life and I, and that was tragic right and I thought well if I kind of half-heartedly live the rest of my life mm-hmm. hopefully 50 more years that seems like it would be kind of doubly tragic be kind of compounding right I mean I can't change the tragedy of him dying at all. Right. I did have the power to not compound that tragedy by also destroying my life. I love that perspective. <laughs> well, and so this is where, you know, a therapist that, that I really hit it off with. And I mean, sometimes I'd sit in her office for hours. I'd be shifting in my chair. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I got to get up and walk around or something. Cause I've been here for three hours already, but it was awesome. It was great. You know? And then, and at one point I remember saying to her, well, so I was, you know, I was talking out loud, a lot of stuff with her, including like, right. I have been wanting to make a career change already, but I didn't know what that looked like. And now I feel like I'm at this crossroads personally, but also like potentially professionally and at a crossroads in perspective shift mm-hmm. and really thinking like I wanted to do something that would be useful to other widowed parents like myself. I'm feeling lost as a widowed parent, right? And, and alone at that point, most people who become widowed parents, their, their parenting experience up to that point is like regular kid stuff, right? Right. Depending on how old your kids are, you've probably had, you know, feeding and potty training and school and homework and soccer and struggles with this and squabbles with that and issues with this but it's all kind of in like the regular kid experience kind of realm Mm -hmm. all of a sudden I'm like well wait a minute I've never had grieving kids before I've never had kids who have a dead dad before right so like what do I do how do how do I not like obviously this is part of their story now forever how does it not also like destroy them there's no making it go away and there's no need to and it wouldn't even be helpful but how does it not destroy them how do they go on to be whole and healthy adults someday right and now it's all up to me because I've also lost my parenting partner right that other person who is as invested in your kids you know and the the other person to bounce things off of and even you know I have friends and I have family and people to bounce things off of but the other you know, the, the buck stops with me, right? Even if I get all the advice I want from all these close people who love me and my kids, mm-hmm. it's still all on me in the end, you know, to figure out anything, whatever it is. So I forgot what my point was. What did you ask? Oh, about me going on. Right. So, so I was like, you know, I should do something in this widowed parenting space and I could go looking for answers for myself and for listeners at the same time. Right. And that seemed like it'd be a really good thing. So in talking through with my therapist, like, how could I do this? How, like, I don't mean how, like, it's not like she was telling me how to get microphones and stuff, but I mean, like, you know, how does this make sense? Right. Like, what does this mean for me and my life and how I construct it? Right. And one of the things also, an idea that I came across at some point, which was really helpful to me for kind of framing it or reframing it was this, this idea to really think hard about if my life is the same five years from now as it is today, would I be okay with that? 
And if you sit there and you think about it that way, because you might imagine, oh, yeah, well, maybe I'm dissatisfied with this or this or that, but eh, someday it'll be better or someday it'll, but, but right. But to really think about it, if everything looks the same in five years, would I really be okay with that? Or would I not be okay with that? Mm-hmm. And if you really ask yourself and the, if the answer is no, or especially if the answer is hell no, then now is the time to start doing something about that. And when I kind of got that framing of it, you know, you can do a lot in five years if you're, if you're thoughtful about it, if you're deliberate about it, you could be in a totally different, whatever, whatever circumstance, whether you're talking about professionally, personally, any other way, things could change a lot in five years, but maybe only if you actually do something about it. Right. So that was kind of, for me then like forcing clarity. I knew I didn't want my life to look the same in five years. And I think I would have been at risk of just those five years, just kind of passing somehow. And it, yes, it, yes, it looking the same. Yeah. So getting that clarity then forced me to, to take some actions. And here's the really interesting thing. <sighs> Earlier in the discussion, I mentioned that um, in September of 2018, I had left my previous job. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to start this podcast. And, you know, I was, I was struggling with, well, I was procrastinating. And I was doing stuff, right? I, I got somebody to make a show art, you know, how podcasts have a little square yeah. graphic with the title and, you know, colors and branding. And I, I even I had a spreadsheet with brainstorming all these possible guests and topics. And I was doing stuff. Right. But I wasn't really moving any closer to actually getting the podcast launched and something was holding me back and I was frustrated and one of the people that I follow on Twitter and other places is Adam Grant and um, your listeners might have heard of him he's a he's a professor at the Wharton School University of Pennsylvania but he's a he's a organizational psychologist Mm -hmm. and he actually also he co-wrote option b with Sheryl Sandberg so after her husband died and interestingly her husband died right before my husband got sick really like like a month before and I remember you know so he wasn't sick at all everything was, our life was fine our life was normal I read in the news Cheryl Sandberg's husband died and she's got these little kids like 10 years old you know and I was like oh my gosh poor Cheryl that's sad like a news story right because I don't know her I don't know right. you know any of them but you know you read about it and you see oh, how sad right well then a month later I'm sitting in the hospital and I will get back to Adam Grant's story. <laughs> I'm sitting in the hospital and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to start following Cheryl's story. Mm-hmm. She was sharing a lot on social media about grief and her journey and her experiences and sharing. And I have to follow this because this is going to be me. Like I knew that this brain cancer was not going to end well. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how long it would be, but I'm like, she, that's, that's going to be my story soon. I've got to follow her and learn everything I can from her. So then she and Adam Grant co-wrote option B about grief mm-hmm. um, a year or so later or something. So I've been following Adam Grant and he sends a tweet and he says, to be more productive, you should study the situations that bring out your discipline and focus. Like try to identify what situations bring out your discipline and focus, and then you could be more productive. So I thought oh, that's interesting. So I thought about it and I said, you know, deadlines. Like that was the only thing I could think of deadlines, bring out my focus. 
You've I'm got a poly- right there too. <laughs> yes. You've got that college paper and it's due tomorrow yeah. <laughs> and I have a deadline and you know what? Now I'm going to focus on it and crank out that paper. Right. And you know, same thing, April 15th tax day, right? That's a deadline, right? <laughs> this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's constantly. Right. So I, I thought about his tweet and I, and really the only thing I could think of was deadlines. Mm-hmm. But so, and then I was like, oh, there's got to more to the story than that because if that was the only problem I was having then that would be an easy fix but I'm still procrastinating on starting this podcast so I I thought about it and I was like maybe I could make up some other conditions like I don't know if I'm working on something meaningful maybe that would help me less procrastinate less I was like no that's that's not because the podcast is meaningful and I'm still procrastinating so what's the problem here right so I thought well let me flip his question on its head so he asked, what situations bring out your discipline and focus? I said, well, what if I ask myself the opposite question? What situations bring out my procrastination? So I really thought about it and I came up with four for me. And some of these might apply to some of your listeners or they might have their own things. But I realized that fear of failure was one of them. Whenever I get into a situation where I'm afraid I might fail at it, Oh, it's so much easier to procrastinate and, you know, and right. avoid because, of course, because, you know, if you can say, well, I didn't do that because I was too busy or something, then you didn't actually fail as opposed to trying and failing. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was one. Another one I realized is when I didn't see the big picture of a situation, if I was getting too bogged down in the details or the weeds, you know, and not kind of seeing the through line of a of a situation or how it hung together, that also tends to stop me. Another thing is I realized I rather enjoy marinating ideas yeah yeah kicking things around and brainstorming and oh, thinking dreaming about this and that right which a lot of that is helpful right you can think of a lot of you know perry mason yeah right <laughs> uh but you know but at some point you got to stop like dreaming up ideas and just start doing something and then the the fourth one was sometimes i'm just like not motivated to do something because it's well it's like taxes or something i don't not really motivated. I don't like doing taxes. I'm not motivated, but you know, I am motivated not to go to tax jail. So that's, you know, that would get me to, you know, solve that one. But so anyway, I identified that, you know, most times when I'm procrastinating, it can be chalked up to one of those four types of things. Mm -hmm. So I tweeted, I retweeted his tweet and I tagged him and I said, you know, I also love this flip side of if he asked what situations bring out your discipline and focus, asking the companion question, what situations bring out your procrastination? If you put those two questions together, I think you can really move the needle on figuring out how to kick procrastination. So I did that and I applied it to the frustration I was having at the moment, which is getting this podcast started. And I realized that, you know, November is Children's Grief Awareness Month. And by this time it was October. It's like, well, Children's Grief Awareness Month, I'm gonna start a podcast for widowed parents. That's too good of an opportunity to miss right? And so, hey, there was a deadline, right? And now I had a deadline to get it up by November. But then I thought about the other things. I went through my four things and, you know, and you know what, speaking of letting fear get in the way, I literally reminded myself, hey, the time I went into the hospital and I texted my friend, this was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I told my husband he was dying and I had to get him to write cards to the kids. That was hard. So, okay, maybe I'm a little afraid of interviewing people or interviewing important people Mm -hmm. or whatever, being public, you know, about this stuff. 
maybe I'm afraid of those things. But if I compare that to that walking into the hospital, I could, I could, I could not be afraid of those things. I could, I could, you know, right. Tell myself that I didn't need to be afraid of those things. So it was quite interesting. So I, you know, so I started the podcast off and running. I actually emailed Adam Grant and I, I told him like, you know, I copied in his tweet and my tweet. And I was like, thank you for this because look, here's why it was important to me. And he was very kind. He actually wrote back to me and thanked me for sharing that. And I think he asked me a couple of follow-up questions and I responded and we had a little back and forth there, which was very nice because, you know, he's, he doesn't have to write back to me. He's busy and he's prominent and, you know, so, and then I actually, you know, the really funny thing, and I sent him a picture of this too. I, now your listeners can't see this either, but I laminated a little card. I'm holding it up here. And I wrote on the top, what situations bring out procrastination? What situations bring out discipline and focus? And so those are things I just mentioned, fear and all those things. Um, And then I wrote some questions on the bottom. And so I pulled this card. I keep this on my desk, actually. And when I'm stuck, I'm like, okay, what's the first question? Am I letting fear get in the way? I ask myself that. Is that that the problem here? And then I can say, oh, yes, I'm afraid of contacting so-and-so. Or I can say, no, no, that's not the problem. Okay, let me go to the next question, right? And so I put some key questions in. The last question is, can I create a deadline to move things along here? <laughs> but the other four are more introspective. You know, do am I seeing, am I not seeing the big picture? If so, do I need to back up and define that to, mm-hmm. you know, to unblock me? So yeah, having this card here, because you know, it's it's easy to forget some of this stuff. For sure. In fact, when I was writing the book and I was finishing it um, last fall, I was procrastinating. <laughs> Uh, on some rewrites that I had to do and I was really dragging my feet and I was kind of complaining to a friend of mine a you know colleague who had who had read an early copy and was writing an advanced testimonial and so I emailed and I kind of complained you know about procrastinating and she's like hey I just read the part of your book where you walked into the hospital and and you said nothing was going to be hard after this she's like remember that I was like oh Yes. Okay. I do. Oh, Thank yeah, you. For- <laughs> I know. And, but you know what? It helped. And I think, you know, I didn't, I must not have had the card on the, on the table in front of me at that moment. And I needed somebody to remind me of it, but it's, it's really been helpful, you know, framing it this way. Yeah. And I try to remind myself of that every time I do get stuck, I still get stuck on things, mm-hmm. but I try to get unstuck faster by remembering this, this framing and, and whether I can, uh, you know, figure out what the problem is. So I, I guess I would encourage, you know, if people are listening, you know, your factors probably are different than my factors, but thinking really th- taking a, a, I was going to say a moment, it's probably more than a moment to really dig deep on what are the situations that bring out my discipline and focus and write those down, you know, as a small number of them. And then what are the situations that bring out my procrastination and write those down mm-hmm. and then put some thought into, you know, is there a framework here? If I'm stuck, can I, can I think about it in this way? Can I think about it in terms of, are there conditions I can build in or blockers I can remove to unstick me here? And they can make their own card. Yes. Laminated card. I'm doing it, Jenny. (laughs) I believe the FedEx store has a laminating machine. They do. Yeah. In fact, it's probably nicer than mine. I have one of those little home ones that you have for like craft stuff that I had got, you know, when the kids were little and I was doing like craft things. Yeah. And so it's handy because I can laminate something quickly, but the FedEx ones are like nice, nice stiff laminating material. Yeah. Well, you have been so inspirational, like 
the show is called Beacons of Bravery. You are a beacon. Thank you. But I want to tell, I want you to tell everybody a little bit about your book. First of all, who is it for? Obviously, we know your story and it's for grieving and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, could anyone else benefit from it? And then let's start with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So great questions. And uh, the book is called Future Widow, Losing My Husband, Saving My Family and Finding My Voice. And so it's a memoir, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's got multiple layers to it. And so logistically speaking, it's based on the Caringbridge uh, journal that I had at the time, the eight months that he was sick. And I've gone back and I've added reflections and behind the scenes stuff and things I wasn't ready to share at the time, including the story about walking into the hospital. At the time, I didn't write about that in Caringbridge. I wrote something very obscure, like, you know, I went for a visit at the hospital today. It was hard. Something like that. Right. And so then in the book, I was like, okay, I wasn't ready to share this, but let me tell you what was happening, you know, behind the scenes here. So anyway, um, the book ends. One of the things I wondered was like, do we end with when he dies? Like, where does it end? And I realized, no, because my story, that's not the end of my story. Right. And so then the the third section is picking up the pieces, right? How do we move forward? Three out of the four of us are continuing. So what happens next? Right. So the book continues. Uh, So, you know, most obviously the book is for widowed parents or for people who have a terminally ill spouse or even a gravely ill spouse, even if it's not necessarily terminal. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not just for those people. It's quite interesting to see, you know, the different people who've read it, and the reactions that I get from readers, you know, Mm -hmm. and I hear from a lot of readers, first of all, who have grief from other types of losses, sibling loss, parent loss, other significant losses that are not, you know, a spouse, that they have told me that it is universal. It's not just about spouse loss. So there's that kind of audience. Other people have told me that they found it very helpful to understand uh, supporting their friends and their colleagues and their family who are grieving. Um, Because one of the things I tried to have kind of a layer of of weaving in there was that theme of how do you be a supportive ally? Because we had so many supportive allies this whole time. I think we had meals delivered three times a week for like almost a year. Like, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so many things. And so, and one of the things you find out pretty quickly is that you know, some people kind of get it and some people are afraid to say anything or they don't know what to say. And I was one of those people before this happened to me. So I very much understand it. It's hard. Right. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to include that component. Um, and so I've had a lot of readers tell me, you know, like they maybe even weren't sure if they should read it or not because they didn't have a dead spouse or a particular grief situation. But then they told me they so much better understood how to be a supportive friend. Truth be told, we all are going to lose somebody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a question of who and when and how and right. I mean, yeah. And so hopefully it won't for most people, it won't be for quite a while. Of course, we're also busy and, you know, you might not if you think you're going to hit something in 50 years, you might not read about it now. You know, But um, but, you know, the other thing is, you know, we're in this pandemic and I've forgotten the latest numbers. I know we're more than 500,000, 600,000 maybe people in this country have died. And there are 40,000 more kids now who have a dead parent because of the pandemic. Mm. So like 
on top of all the kids who have a dead parent from cancer and from suicide and from accidents and from other illnesses, there are also now 40,000 more who have a parent who died of COVID. Mm. So that's a lot of kids now who are grieving and a lot of families who are now, you know, have a, a single widowed parent mm-hmm. and one or more kids and teenagers, right? And I'm not talking even about people who have grown children. I'm talking about kids that are still at home and teenagers that are still at home, right? And there's more, therefore, grieving kids in our kid, our kids' classmates, you know, we're more likely, our kids are more likely to have somebody in their class or their school who's had a major loss in the past year. Um, it's hard for kids. If it's hard for adults to support, it's really hard for kids. Adults don't know what to say. Kids really don't know what to say, mm-hmm. right? So I think that the general level of grief awareness and I don't know if interest is the right word, but you know, like it's been so much more in people on the forefront of people's minds in the past year. Um, mm-hmm. So I think for that reason, it's, you know, it's applicable to a lot of people, not just the widowed parents, but certainly anybody who's a widowed parent, you know, for sure. Yeah. Run, don't walk to, to read it <laughs> for sure. And the name of your podcast again, it's called the widowed parent podcast. Okay. Available on all the, Yep. Apple, Google, of course. A-L-E-X-A. I won't say it because I didn't turn the thing off and she'll start talking if I. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to circle back because we've gone really deep. I cried. I'm a crier. But anyway, back to you've written a book and now you're helping other people write a book. Mm. I think that's really exciting. Like I said, I'm aspiring in that way. What flipped that switch or made you think, well, did your friends come and say, oh, I've always had a book in me and I just don't know how to do it. You know, what made that turn on? Well, you know, it's interesting. I had about three different people all around the same time say, you know, like they were watching what I was doing with you know, launching my book and they're saying, wow, you know, you're really good at this. Like, will you help me? And, and I was like, ha ha ha, I don't, you know, thank you. But you know, I, I'm not in this line of work. I don't, I don't do this. Right. Uh, no, really. You know, and so once, you know, the first person said it, I kind of dismissed it. The second person said it and I was like, Hmm, yeah, no. And the third person said it. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they're onto something here. And um, so there are a lot of people writing books right now. And, you know, some of them will get traditional publishing deals. Um, a lot of them, are independently publishing or want to independently publish. And there's a lot to know and a lot to do to do it right, right? It's actually quite simple to throw a book on Amazon, you know, just to throw it on there. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sell any copies or that it's going to be, you know, quote unquote, good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of steps to, you know, to, to do a good job of it. And so I realized I could start helping people with that. And it's been a lot of fun. I've been, I have clients all over the place, different types of books. Um, interestingly, most of them so far are like in the business and leadership kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do think I'm going to do something in the grief book, grief memoir kind of mm-hmm. space. There are a lot of people that I hear from who are interested in writing a memoir based on their experiences or, you know, their friends maybe have suggested that they're a good writer and they have a good story to tell and they're thinking about, you know, what they could do with that. And I'm thinking about putting together some kind of maybe a group cohort, like, yeah. you know, five or 10 people who are all, you know, just getting started or, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. 
it also might be a little more of affordable option, right? If you're in a group with five or 10 people rather than, you know, individual consulting obviously is higher price tag. Accountability. I was in a group coaching program too. And that's actually how I stopped procrastinating to start my podcast. Oh, good. Same thing. We were in accountability pods and I actually have a connection for you. One of my pod partners, she has a podcast, her, and she was a previous guest. Her husband was a fighter pilot that got killed. So she has a kind of similar, you guys would be perfect on each other's shows. So great, great. (laughs) I'll look you up there, but terrific. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cause you can do, like you said, it's more affordable, but everyone's in the same boat and you can kind of go along the same way. I love that. And there is a certain, you know, benefit to having a group where you can motivate each other and learn from each other and inspire each other. And if, you know, if, if everybody's writing grief books and someone has a good idea, then it might also apply to other people, you know, or someone has a good marketing idea or a good, you know, they land a good podcast or something that podcast hosts might be interested in some of the other people's stories or, you know, it depends, but I do think it, you know, writing a memoir is hard. Mm -hmm. And I I think I underestimated how hard writing a memoir was. And when I say hard, I think the hardest thing for me was the, 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 the feeling of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And obviously I should have recognized that ahead of time. And I did, you know, I knew that it was personal and vulnerable, but I didn't really know in my gut until it was almost out in the world. And even though I had had positive responses so far from, you know, the early readers and, you know, great testimonials from some awesome people. And one of my biggest concerns was, is this book really going to be helpful to anybody, right? I'm not just writing this to just hear myself talk. I'm writing it to be helpful to the readers, hopefully feeling less alone and bringing them some information that would be helpful that I wish I had had things like this, right? So I'm freaking out at the last minute, like, oh my gosh, is this book going to help anybody anyway? And, you know, and oh my gosh, this is going to be out in the world. And I'm just feeling super vulnerable. And maybe I should pull the plug on the whole thing. Uh Right now, this is like, you know, the 11th hour, my writing accountability buddy had to like, talk me down more than once. (laughs) And you know what I had to do at the last minute was I, I, downloaded Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I forget which book it is. It might be Daring Greatly. I don't know which one it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I like I downloaded it on Audible and I listened to the whole thing in one afternoon. I had to totally binge it to be like, all right, vulnerability. I'm going to have to get okay with vulnerability if this book is going to, you know, go out in the world. So I did that and I was like, oh, okay. You got in the arena. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I let Brene Brown, by way of her book, audio book, tuck me into, you know, being more or less enough okay with vulnerable to to go ahead and, you know, proceed and let the book out into the world. And now that, you know, it's had a great response. And so it's, and, you know, people write to me and say that it was helpful in different regards. And so that is, it's what I wanted and it makes it worth it, you know, because I, I, like I said, I didn't write it just to hear myself talk. Right. And if people had said, well, it's kind of interesting, but it's not really helpful, then I would have failed right. as a writer, right? And so it is it is nice to hear when it's, you know, hitting the mark. And then, I mean, just even like with a podcast, as you know, you know that you're going to get haters at some point. If, mm. if you don't, it, even though your topic would seem hard to get haters, but you know, <laughs> you, know you will. 
But what I've heard with memoirs, and let me know if this is something that like you help your clients with, but you even mentioned, at what segment of my story do I want to start and stop? Because, you know, you go, I was born in Redmond, Washington, you know, and go, you know, but what part is impactful for this book? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. It's a hard question. It's an important question. So I guess the most important thing is realizing that you even need to ask the question and consider the question, as opposed to just assuming that you're going to start on the day you're born and end up on today's date. Right. right? And, and that's actually, it's interesting. I didn't know the difference between autobiography and memoir before mm-hmm. I started this. And an autobiography, generally is about like a famous person or a historical person or somebody where you really do it really is their whole life story you know like if if you're going to have an autobiography of I don't know Abraham Lincoln or something you want to know like where the log cabins and the childhood and the you want to know the whole thing right but a memoir interesting thing what's different about it is it's a slice a slice of a period uh, you know one experience or one period or one theme or one slice of that life and it doesn't need to be and it doesn't try to be and it shouldn't be encompassing the whole life in an autobiographical sense Mm -hmm. so in terms of thinking about the topic you know and thinking about where the story starts and ends because the interesting thing too about memoir is it has to be a story that's as well told as a fiction story and yet you're constrained by the true events and the true observations and the true, you know, the truth. Mm-hmm. So if you're making up a, a you know, a, a fictional Harry Potter world or something, and you need another, you know, bad guy or another good guy or another type of sword or whatever, if you're the author, you can make up that whole world. Right. Mm-hmm. And you do, and you think very carefully about your world that you're creating with your characters. And in a memoir, you have to, you have to tell a story that's compelling and you have to think about, you know, maybe there are some, you know, characters, in this case, they're actual people characters. But anyway, you know, some characters that belong in there, some characters that don't belong in there. And the other interesting thing is that you become a character in your own story. And one of my readers told me, which is quite an interesting insight, you know, my book has character Jenny and narrator Jenny, right? So there's like, there's the character who's going along and who's going to the hospital and who this terrible thing's happening and who's dealing with this. And you know, there's the character throughout the book, but then there's the narrator who's bringing in the reflection today. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of keeping aware of that and making sure that you're not like mixing up those voices and that it's kind of clear. But, you know, when you think, I read a very interesting book, The Anatomy of Story by John Truby. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very dense read like I'm not sure I recommend it for everyone if you're really interested in diving into what makes a good story Mm -hmm. um he's actually like a screenwriter film filmmaker and stuff and but it turns out that the principles of storytelling apply whether it's a film whether it's a Charles Dickens novel whether it's a memoir and so you can apply those same principles of good storytelling and so he goes in great detail about like the themes and the symbolism and the characters and which characters are your opponents and which are your allies and you know and then like the 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 central problem or struggle that the main character has and what kind of character transformation are they going to have over the course of the story like if you think about Star Wars right, right. Luke Luke transforms from a 
young, innocent farmer or whatever he was mm-hmm. on whatever planet he was on. And then through the story, he struggles with, very, you know, and learns Jedi stuff and he struggles with all these things. And by the end, he's, you know, defeats Darth Vader or whatever. Like, so there's a, there's a transformation in the character there. So when you think of, you know, those kind of things, in fact, I'm looking up here at the, my wall and you can't see it, but I've still got on the wall, the index cards uh-huh. that I took notes on when I was reading this book and I mapped out, you know, the, the self-revelation and the fake ally opponent and the, you know, and all these things mapping to the principles of the story. And I'm like, how does this part apply? Like what part of my story could map to this or this or this and how can I put that together then into a way that tells a story in a way that's you know interesting as a story plus has these themes and hopefully you know information and lessons and because the one thing I really didn't want to do was because I was you know I was using this Caring Bridge journal as a starting point but the risk was I didn't want it to just be like this happened this happened this happened the end right mm-hmm. which the the journal is kind of that way because you have eight months worth of entries and then he dies and then it ends Mm -hmm. and I'm like okay so that I've got raw material for a starting point but how do I turn this into an actual book how it how does this set of journal entries become a memoir Mm -hmm. and I do think that is something that requires thought there I think there are book coaches and stuff who can help with that kind of thing but I think it's one of the ways sometimes that it's you know books can struggle if they haven't had that kind of bigger picture you know structure and 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 design in as part of it well one you're a good storyteller so <laughs> you, you learn something two i'm going to get that book because <laughs> okay. it sounds wonderful mm. and um one of the last things i want to ask you is you know your book coaching we'll call it whatever you call it do you have a, a name for that company or a website or something if somebody is interested in writing a book that we could send them to Sure. Yeah. Probably the easiest thing is if they can, that you can email me Jenny at blueandbooks.com. So it's J E N N Y at B L U H E N books.com. Um, I do have a, just a one-page website on blueandbooks.com that just doesn't have much. It's just kind of a landing page. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've gotten so many people who me to help them that I've just kind of bypassed like setting up a whole website that talks about all this stuff. I'm like, let me just dive into helping people. (laughs) And and then I'll figure out, you know, I think that, you know, if I start doing, uh, or when I start doing like a group coaching programs, I'll need to have a website with describing the program. But so far I've just been like, let me just dive into, to, you know, consulting with these people. And so, yeah, but if anybody, you know, I'm happy to have a 30 minute chat with anybody who's just, you know, thinking about writing a book and see if there's some ways that I can, you give them some pointers to get started and, you know, and help if they're interested in, uh, in that as well. Well, you've been so generous with your time here. I know we've run over, but I mean, I was transfixed in what you were saying. So I really appreciate it. I usually ask you some final questions, a book you recommend. You've already recommended a couple. Is there mm-hmm. one other one or are we good with what you've done? Uh, well, you know, I, yeah, we're great with what I've done. But if I could throw out one more, I would I would throw in um, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, terrific book, which I, I probably need to reread it. I read it like 30 or more years ago. And and that was really um, important perspective, I think. So I would throw out that one as a right. recommended. And I just bought that because a lot of people recommend it. I bought it about six months ago and it really is amazing. 
for people who don't know, he was an Auschwitz survivor, one of the few in his cohort or whatever. And he really observed what it made, what made people who survived survive, right? Mm. Well, yeah. And what I really found was the most impactful. I mean, I, I read it so long ago that I think like the only thing I remember mm-hmm. is that he says that there's a gap between what he calls stimulus and response or like he realized that his freedom, you know, he had no freedom in his conditions living in the concentration camp. He had no freedom in so many things, right? They tortured and didn't have enough food and had miserable everything. No freedom in any of that. He realized his freedom that nobody could take away from him was how he would respond to those circumstances. They could do all the terrible things they wanted, but the one thing they could not do was take away his choice in how he would respond. Yeah. And that gap, I think, you know, and I, I, I have to think that that's had a big, you know, lasting influence on, on me and how I look at this, right? Like, like I said, you know, I don't know, an hour ago by this point, my husband died and I don't have any choice in that. I can choose how I respond and nobody can take that away from me. And that's, I think that's probably the only thing I remember from the book, but that I think for me anyway, was the most essential point. And so, like I said, I think I will reread it again. I've got, you see all these books on my shelf behind me that I have to read for all my guests, you know, coming up on the show. So I don't know when I'll get to it, but I do, I do kind of wonder 30 years later, what I might, what else I might take out of it now, you know, but that I think was, was enough to last me a long time. Is there any quote that you might have laminated as well? Or one that you um, (laughs) refer back to time and time again? Well, it's funny you mentioned laminated. I actually have... I have laminated some of the nice things and people write to me about my show. Uh-huh. As you know, I mean, it's hard being a podcast host. Sometimes you're like, why am I doing this? Uh-huh. And what, you know, and is it really worth it? And is anybody listening? And so I actually laminated, you know, I printed out some of the nice, like either comments on social media or emails uh-huh. and I put the, put the best ones together on a little card and I printed it and I put it on my desk here too. And I'm like, you know, those times when I say to myself, why am I doing this? To pull that out and remind myself that yeah it is uh, worthwhile, but I that wasn't really your question. I you know the probably the number one uh, quote that I I like and I think it was Gandhi was be the change that you want to see in the world. Love that one, hundred yeah. percent. Mm. Okay, so we've gone over the name of your book, the name of your podcast, how they can email you. Um, mm. How about follow you on social media? Give your handles, and I'll put them in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, I'm at Lisk Jenny, L-I-S-K-J-E-N-N-Y, mm-hmm. on all the channels. Okay. Um, and then the best place to find my book, if you go to futurewidowbook.com, mm-hmm. um, because I know some people like Amazon, some people like Barnes & Noble, some people like their local independent bookstores, some people want ebook or paperback. We've got all the links there, as well as some information about the book. So it's futurewidowbook.com. And then um, my website is jennylisk.com. So all the podcast stuff, articles that I've written. And actually, I wrote an article on this Adam Grant yeah. uh, story that we talked about. I, and so that's on my website as well. Um, and I did want to mention that I've got two downloadable documents that might be interesting to different sets of your audience. So one is for allies. So for those people who want to know, how can I help my friend or my colleague or my neighbor? 
because people write to me all the time and they say, my neighbor's husband just died and they have two little kids or my colleague's wife just died. What should I do? So finally I put together a document. So it's jennylisk.com slash allies. Okay. Um, there's some useful information there. And then for widowed parents, I, I put together, so it's jennylisk.com slash top 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the top 10 things I've learned from the guests on my show. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the key, cause I realized after I'm a hundred episodes in now that like, even if you listen every single week, you know, the topics change week to week right. and everything. It's like, I need to extract some of the main points here. Um, so I, I put those together in, uh, in there. Awesome. And I encourage everyone to reach out and please, please reach out to Jenny on social and tell her something that you got out of this show, because I know I can think of a few people that I'm specifically going to share it with besides the usual shares that it will mean something. So, you know, just like she said, a lot of times when we're podcasting as a guest or a host, you don't know who's out there. Like, does this mean anything? Am I in an echo chamber? Tag <laughs> her on social media. Let her know you made this difference to me. And I think that would help you as well. huh? Yeah. Thank you. That'd be wonderful. And I mean, I love hearing from listeners and readers and um, the web, the email address I gave before at, at blueandbooks.com is actually for you know, people interested in book stuff. But mm-hmm. my main kind of grief podcast book, you know, author email is Jenny at JennyLisk.com. Okay. And anybody can write to me on there. I mean, write to either one. I will get them. But, you know, I try to kind of separate things a little bit so I don't lose things in the wrong email box. Right. Uh, but I love hearing from listeners and hearing, um, you know, and I, I think sometimes people are surprised. I, I, I write back and, you know, maybe they'll ask a question and I'll send back a suggestion or a book I recommend or a, you know, episode I recommend or something. Um, so, yeah, shoot me a note and uh, glad to hear from people. She does read her emails. <laughs> I can attend. <laughs> that. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. I, I can't wait for people to follow you and just to keep learning from you. Well, thank you, Carrie. This has been great. It's been so much fun talking to you. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Beacons of Bravery podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would go and rate and review the show and also share it with somebody who you think would benefit from listening to the message. I would also love to connect with you on Instagram or you can email me at beaconsofbravery at gmail.com. I hope something that you heard today will help you go out and live a more joy-filled, inspired life. Don't keep playing it safe. Be brave today. And of course, a huge shout out to Steve Denny for providing the music for this podcast.